On Monday, April 2nd, and this is a recent addition to the schedule, Fred Schreiber is lecturing on the STNs at 6 o'clock. This is repeating the Haynes lecture that Schreiber gave at the University of North Carolina uh, several months ago. On Monday, the 9th of April, Nicholas Pickwode, the advisor to the National Trust in England for Conservation, will be speaking on why there is no history, or perhaps more properly, why is there no history of English bookbinding. On Monday, the 16th of April, James Mosley, the librarian of the St. Bride Printing Library in London, and no, strangers, no stranger to this microphone, will be speaking on the Renaissance inscriptional capital and showing how this was adapted in early printed book letter form. On Monday, the 23rd of April, Linda Clausen, the rare book librarian at the University of California, San Diego, will be speaking on her operations there. And on Monday, the 30th of April, Clifton Jones, the librarian of the de Gaulier Collection of Western Americana at Southern Methodist University, will be speaking about what he does for a living. And that's the schedule for April. The great event around here this week was the filming in room 511, which is the small classroom next to my office, of a Chicken McNugget commercial. And if you wonder why there's such a curious smell in this building, it's because they fried Chicken McNuggets in the hall from 7 o'clock on Thursday morning until uh, 11 o'clock on Thursday night. One gets paid quite handsomely for this. Room 511 is thought to be the archetypical university classroom, by the way. People use it all the time. If you saw the film Author, Author, then you saw that classroom, although you had to look hard because though the film took place at NYU, there was thought to be no classroom at NYU that looked like an NYU classroom. <laughs> and our room was taken. However, the furniture in 511 was thought not to look like NYU furniture. Cross my heart, they rented furniture from CUNY and brought it down here. <laughs> and you can see Al Pacino fighting Tuesday Weld in room 511 if you ever have a chance to see author, author. Such is fame. Mr. Bond, I think, had no notion that he was speaking in such hallowed halls. It is a great pleasure to welcome Mr. Bond, uh, formerly the director of the Houghton Library at Harvard and now professor of bibliography, now and still professor of bibliography at Harvard, who will be speaking on Thomas Hollis with particular reference to emblematical bindings, which gives some of you who had trouble with this another chance to get it straight. <laughs> Mr. Bond. Thank you, Terry. I want to introduce you to Thomas Hollis of Lincoln's Inn. Before I begin to talk about book bindings, the book bindings he commissioned and spread far and wide between the years 1758 and 1774. Because he was the fifth member of the Hollis family to bear that name, there's plenty of room for confusion about his identity particularly because he much preferred anonymity to publicity. To make matters worse, upon his death, his close friend and heir, Thomas Brand, no relation, changed his name to Brand Hollis. Therefore, I must subject you to a brief genealogical overture during which you can compose yourselves before the lights go off and the slides come on. That is, barring technical difficulties beyond my control. The Hollis family came from the West Riding of Yorkshire, 
a tribe of dissenters in religion and Whigs in politics. The first Thomas Hollis was a, a successful cutler and whitesmith. He died in 1663. His eldest son, Thomas II, was born there in 1634 and moved to London during the Civil Wars. He prospered as a merchant and died in 1718. Thereafter, the family was mostly London-based, though its Midland origins were never forgotten, and one family charity, the Hollis Hospital, still exists in Sheffield. His eldest son, Thomas II's eldest son, was Thomas III, who was twice married but died without issue in 1730. He was the first of the numerous family benefactors of Harvard College, which they all appeared to regard as the dissenting academy in North America. Curiously enough, none of them crossed the Atlantic during the 18th century to see for themselves. They took it on faith. Shortly after succeeding to his father's fortune, Thomas III founded the Hollis Chairs of Divinity in 1721 and of Natural Philosophy in 1727, and they are the first endowed chairs in any American college. He was otherwise generous to Harvard in cash and kind, including some books, a few of which survive. Hollis Hall was named for him by the grateful president and fellows, and that began another custom that has since become a Pavlovian response of professional fundraisers, if not bait for a trap. His younger brothers, Nathaniel and John, survived him and also made gifts to Harvard. The fourth Thomas Hollis was the eldest son of Nathaniel. And the fifth Thomas Hollis, the hero of the evening, was the son of Thomas IV, born on April 14, uh, 1720. He was originally educated for a mercantile career, going as a teenager to Amsterdam to learn accounting and the French language and the Dutch language as well. But when he was 15 years old, his father died, leaving him a considerable fortune. And three years later, grandfather Nathaniel died, leaving him another fortune. He and his guardians decided that he should switch to a classical education to prepare for a life of public service. As a dissenter, he couldn't enter, enter either university. And that was fortunate for him because they were in a low estate at that time. Learning at Oxford and Cambridge was really in a period of decline. Instead, he received superior training from Dr. John Ward, chief tutor at Gresham College in London, one of the leading dissenting academies. He mastered the Greek and Latin languages and literatures. He acquired a taste and an eye for classical antiquities and the fine arts that he exercised the rest of his life. If you want to know the kind of education he had that he consciously and conscientiously undertook, you should consult Milton's somewhat daunting tractate of education. Hollis is surely one of the few people in history to have had a truly Miltonian education in every sense of the word, physical as well as intellectual. When he came into his fortune at his majority, he acquired large farming estates in Dorset, amounting eventually to more than 3,000 acres. Milton said that an educated man should both understand and practice the principles of, it, of agriculture. He also took up residence for six years in Lincoln's Inn, reading law with no intention to practice. Milton told him that the law was the correct preparation for public service. 
I believe he originally intended a parliamentary career, but when he found that the way into the House of Commons was through bribes and rotten boroughs, he declined to stand for election, though offered safe seats on a number of occasions. He also began collecting books, antiquities, and works of art. In 1748, again following Milton's advice, he set off for the first of two grand tours of the continent, ranging from Scandinavia to Malta, and as far east as Poland and Vienna, making contacts that he kept up the rest of his life. Later, he was to send books to people as various as Linnaeus, Catherine the Great, the Prince of Taramutza in Sicily, and a set of drawing instruments specially made by Benjamin Martin, the best instrument maker in London, to Piranesi. To the language he had, languages that he had learned earlier, he added fluency in French and Italian, and a little bit of German. If these failed, he was fully as able as Dr. Johnson to converse in Latin. Nor did he neglect physical training. Following Milton's advice, he took up riding and fencing. And when he was back in London, he rode out into the country most Sundays on a horse he kept in a livery stable at Hyde Park Corner. And he worked out with a fencing master two or three times a week. He was, in fact, a man of imposing physique. Here is a portrait bust by the sculptor Joseph Wilton. And this is the painter Cipriani's description of him, translated from Italian. He was over six feet tall, making him unusually large for an 18th century Englishman. Herculean in size and strength, with a round face, low prominent forehead, bright brown eyes, high cheekbones, short nose, laughing mouth, and short neck, wide in the chest and shoulders. The rest of his body was similarly proportioned, and his knees and calves, which current fashion leaves uncovered, were perfect in their proportion, their shape and curves, and in keeping with his Herculean character. And with all this, there wonderfully joined an incomparable manner of gentleness and sweetness. Hollis returned to London in 1753, convinced that England was the only land of freedom, and determined to spend the rest of his life fostering the principles of civil and religious liberty by every means at his disposal, which were considerable, except that of public office. These principles were those of the glorious revolution of 1688 and the accession of the House of Hanover 26 years later. Hollis began systematic propaganda, all of it anonymous, one part of which lay in publishing and republishing the great texts of the English Revolution and broadcasting them far and wide in England, Europe, and the New World. To those who have even heard of him today, Hollis is probably best known as the subject of a disparaging conversation in Boswell's Life of Johnson, where he is called the strenuous Whig, who used to send over Europe presents of democratical books with their boards stamped with daggers and caps of liberty. Here Boswell was echoing a passage in his journal when in 1764 he traveled in Switzerland and took pains to make the acquaintance of Voltaire and Rousseau. On November 30th he visited Bern, and this is Boswell's journal. I must here remark that in this and all the principal libraries that I have seen abroad, they have shown me a present of books sent by a certain unknown whimsical Englishman, anonymous, you see. He is no doubt a most prodigious Whig, for he has sent Milton's prose works, which I suppose he prefers to as poetry. He was wrong there. Toland's Life of Milton, Algernon Sidney's works, several other such dainty pieces of British Republican writing. 
The books are bound in red Morocco and adorned with gilded stamps of the Cap of Liberty, pitchforks, swords, and I know not what other terrible instruments of fury. I am surprised that he has not thought of introducing the scaffold, the block, and the axe. He might have adorned a whole board with a representation of the murder of King Charles. He has, however, a stamp of Great Britain as she is usually seen portrayed upon our halfpence. To render her, however complete, he has subjoined this sensible and sublime inscription, O fair Britannia, hail. Lest Sidney Milton and Tullin should not be strong enough in the good cause, our enthusiast has now and then added notes of his own and quotations from others like himself. Boswell evidently was not aware that the words, O fair Britannia, hail, were a quotation from a patriotic ode by Mark Akenside, who some years earlier had been Hollis's friend and close neighbor in Lincoln's Inn. Though Boswell found Hollis's books laughable in 1764 and spoke of them patronizingly in 1781, they clearly made a considerable impression on him, and he was unconsciously providing the proving the validity of an important part of Hollis's activities. His principal fame among bibliographers, bibliophiles, and historians has rested upon the many emblematic bindings that he commissioned and then distributed wherever he thought they might best promote the growth and protection of civil and religious liberty. He did this not only in libraries all over Europe, but also in the New World. He was not perversely eccentric or indulging in ostentation in commissioning emblematic bindings and distributing them so widely and purposefully. As he himself wrote to President Edward Holyoke of Harvard on June 24, 1765, the bindings of books are little regarded by me for my own library. But by, using, but by long experience, I have found it necessary to attend to them for other libraries, having thereby drawn attention, notice, with preservation on many excellent books or curious which it is probable would else have passed unheeded or neglected. The proof lies in the extraordinarily large number of Hollis bindings that have survived. In the interest that they've always invited and in the influence sometimes exerted by the texts they contain. Before I turn to a particular notice of the emblematic bindings, <clears throat> there are several general observations that I should make. First, he was not altogether candid in saying that bindings were little regarded by him for his own proper library. That part of his personal library not given away in his lifetime descended by bequest along with his fortune in 1774 to his friend Thomas Brand. In turn, Brand Hollis bequeathed it to the Reverend John Disney, a dissenting minister well known to both Hollis and Brand Hollis. Disney died in 1816. His heirs sold the library at Sotheby's the next year. Between a third and a half of the books in that library had once belonged to Thomas Hollis. The rest were added by subsequent owners. Some of the very finest Hollis bindings now extant were in that sale, and the lion's share went to Richard Heber. At Heber's sale, many of the best passed to Sir George Holford, from whose library they dispersed into numerous collections in Europe and America. Uh, a substantial number of Harvard's very best specimens followed this route, though the great majority of what we have in Cambridge came from Hollis himself. It's thus manifestly untrue that Hollis did not relish fine bindings for their own sake and didn't have them made for himself. 
or treasure them in his own library. Second, several other but non-symbolic classes of binding were commissioned by Hollis with equal care and attention to detail. Worth looking at for their own sake and because they tell us at least a little about binding practices in the third quarter of the 18th century. Because of Hollis's great benefactions to Harvard after the fire destroyed most of the college library in 1764, more Hollis bindings of all kinds are concentrated there than anywhere else in the world. I wish I could say they were also in better condition than anywhere else in the world, but that is not the case. Some are still in the open stacks. Before the catastrophe, Harvard's had been the most considerable library in New England, if not in British North America. To rebuild its collections, he gave generous quantities of carefully chosen books whose number can still only be estimated. At least 3,000 titles and perhaps as many as 5,000. I'm still finding them. Books flooded in at such a rate that the small and harried library staff could not keep complete or accurate records of them. Many were taken from his own shelves. For example, in one shipment, almost all the books he'd earlier acquired in Italy while on the Grand Tour. Many more were purchased according to a carefully developed plan, not unrelated to Milton's outlines in Of Education. You will not be surprised to hear. Books marked Hollis Ipsius by our 19th century great librarian John Langdon Sibley can still be retrieved from the open shelves throughout what has become the vast complex of the Harvard University Library. Third, certain characteristics are common to almost all Hollis bindings of whatever variety. With the exception of a number of the emblematic bindings executed by John Matthewman, the spines bear leather labels or lettering pieces of a different color from the binding, with sometimes idiosyncratic identifications stamped in gold capitals, you will see some of them later, using individual tools rather than letters set in a palette. The words of the title are usually set off in inscriptional style by full stops at the level of hyphens rather than at the base of the line. The end papers are almost invariably marbled in either of two principal styles. The bold swirls of the common, so-called common French marbling, whoop, that's Hollis again, I'm sorry. I think you should have another look at it, though. That's a, a drawing done by Cipriani preparatory to an engraving, which is to be found in the Memoirs of Hollis published in 1780. He appears twice, once as a Roman on the pillar and once with his wig on down the corner looking a little mischievous. And you may recall that uh, on the base of the bust that you were looking at for such a long time were the two Roman short swords on either side of a uh, freedman's cap, a Roman freedman's cap or pileus. You see it on the base there as well. Everything on in the picture has some symbolic meaning to him. He was brought up on emblem books, and that's why the bindings are emblematic and the engravings and pictures he, he uh, commissioned were emblematic. Now on to the French marbling paper. That's one of the two main styles used. These are used in about equal quantities often in this combination of uh, colors, but sometimes in more pastel shades. And this is the smaller Dutch comb design, which he also used. 
and there are at least four sub-varieties of each of these kinds of paper. One can't be more specific because the varieties tend to merge into one another. And furthermore, of course, each piece of marble paper is unique. They're, they are uh, monotypes in a way. So there are no two pieces that are exactly alike. In most volumes, the end leaves are sewn in. And the stitches show very clearly in the gutter. And that's rather unusual in, in a book binding. End leaves are usually pasted in rather than, rather than sewn in. Single leaves of marbled paper are sometimes used as dividers in tract volumes that he had put together also. The edges of the leaves are most often finely sprinkled in red and then polished. In a few special books, they are marbled more or less to match the end papers, which shows that while most marbled paper was imported, English binders could execute marbling when they needed to. In a few exceptional cases, all three edges are gilt, but the top edges are never gilt by themselves. Despite having his books cut to produce smooth edges, Hollis was at pains to preserve margins as much as possible. With few exceptions, the headbands are red and white, green and white, red and green, or red, green, and white. Each volume has a dark green silk ribbon fastened at the middle of the top headband, and a few thick volumes have more than one such marker. The books Hollis acquired in Italy were mostly bound there in stiff vellum and not tampered with later. Their edges are more coarsely sprinkled in red and green, and they have a distinctive blue-green ribbon marker quite different from the usual color. In at least two instances on special bindings, black edges and black ribbons were used for propaganda purposes. Most books, unless very small or very large, were sewn on five cords with stout linen thread used for the sewing. You can see how stout in that example. Only Matthewman's octavo emblematic bindings have the cords sawed in to produce smooth spines. Perhaps most striking of all, Many of the books in emblematic bindings contain on the front and back binders leaves and very occasionally on the paste down end papers, sometimes elsewhere within the volume, smoke or carbon prints of the emblematic tools like this. May be able to get that focused a little better. That's fairly sharp. Or like this. Those are exact reproductions, of course, of the, of the binder's tools. These are just like the smoke proofs taken by letter cutters in following the progress of their work on typographical punches. The two I've just shown you are from a book that's in the Harvard Library, and this is one that I found in Dr. Williams's library in London with the same pattern and the further advantage of Hollis's handwriting at the bottom of the page. The tool was, to make these impressions, the tool was held in a smoky flame and then imprinted, probably warm, on the paper. An extraordinarily sharp and accurate image results. Such details are worth recording because they don't represent standard shop practices, as they might in so many cases, but rather the personal supervision of Hollis himself. Hollis's unpublished diary contains many hints, of which the entry for April 30, 1762 is one of the more specific employed in looking over divers' parcels of books which I have lately purchased and in sorting them and writing directions concerning them for Shove and Matthewman. Shove and Matthewman were the two binders he most often used. 
So far in examining the Hollis books at Harvard, <clears throat> I have found seven containing accidental evidence of how Hollis gave instructions to his binder. With pen and ink on strips of paper about two inches wide and six or eight inches long, he specified the number of bands by drawing double horizontal lines for each band. Uh, this is a strip on which he wrote on both sides of the strip, which is unusual, and it offset on the facing pages. I will reverse this slide so that we'll read the right way around. You'll be able to make out a little bit of it, perhaps. This is a copy of Harrington's Oceana, and you can see the title up at the top of the right, or at least part of it. And you may be able to make out some of the words below. It's a little hard to do without putting it under ultraviolet light. He specified the number of bands by drawing double horizontal lines for each band. He wrote in capital letters the text, line, division, and punctuation of the lettering pieces, and he added in his current hand such other instructions as he felt necessary. In the seven volumes I've observed, the freshly written strips have offset more or less legibly on the verso of the title page or the recto of the next leaf. You can imagine how delighted I was last spring when I was in the Stott Bibliothek in Bern looking at the books that Hollis gave there and found just such a slip in Hollis's hand that it had accidentally been bound in where he had put it. It was like finding a dinosaur to match a fossil footprint. That's a kind of evidence I've not encountered before. And while it doesn't much advance our knowledge of 18th century binding, it shows the degree of attention lavished by Hollis on his bindings, and it explains the long hours that are recorded in the diary preparing books for the binder. There were periods when he spent day after day, week after week, preparing books for the binder. As with virtually every activity in which he engaged, Hollis had well-defined goals and systematically pursued them. I don't know when he concluded that emblematic bindings provided a powerful means of emphasizing the text that he had chosen for what Carolyn Robbins has called his Library of Liberty. The earliest example still preserved at Harvard was also among his earliest gifts. It survived the Harvard fire of 1764 because President Holyoke evidently thought it so handsome that he kept it at home instead of in the library. That's volume one of a two-volume set of Milton's prose works. Uh, it was anonymously edited by Richard Barron in two striking quarto volumes, London 1753, but it was obviously bound after 1756 because it has a text of iconoclasties in it that Barron didn't find until 1756 and then published separately and substituted in this set. It has red Morocco spines that are now somewhat faded, uh, green sides, as you see, and it has very striking calf doublures of varying design in the first volume. That's the front doublure, a leather substitute for end papers, paste down end papers, and that's the back one. It was inscribed by Hollis on January 1, 1759, and ornamented with many edifying notes and markings to call attention to important passages. In the 19th century, Harvard's indefatigable librarian, John Langdon City, Sibley, added to the engraved book plate, Relato, 28 December, 1759. 
Hollis had sent it on the 1st of January, you recall. Mails were nearly as slow in 1759 as they are today, and librarians took just as long to get accessions to the shelf. Other copies similarly bound survive in libraries in England, Italy, and Switzerland, and probably elsewhere, too. I suspect at Leiden in the Low Countries. I've not seen that yet. Evidently, Hollis began his early habit of having multiple copies of important works bound for wide distribution. On the covers, amid gilt wreaths and designs made of rolls and small tools, is the figure of Britannia holding a staff and olive branch above the familiar words, O fair Britannia, hail. Go back to it. There we are. On the spine, the same Britannia tool alternates with the small tool of a chapeau or cap of maintenance bearing a crowned lion, a device not apparently associated with Hollis, whose own crest was a dagger in pale, point downward argent, the hilt an owl in profile or, standing on the guard or. A large paper copy of Algernon Sidney, Discourses Concerning Government, London 1751, also at Harvard, is in red Morocco with essentially similar covers, so I won't bother to show it to you, except that it has a, large, a larger version of the Britannia tool. Its spine bears the same size Britannia tool as the Milton, this time alternating with a larger and more detailed lion cap of maintenance. This copy is also remarkable for a suite of six-color proofs of the woodblocks making up John Baptist Jackson's striking chiaroscuro portrait of Sidney, commissioned by Hollis in 1754. He didn't greatly admire Jackson's work, but he was sympathetic because the artist had fallen on hard times and needed help. That's another Hollis characteristic. This volume was bequeathed to the Harvard College Library as late as March 1875 by President James Walker, and one is tempted to suspect that it came down to him by an extension of the same droit de seigneur that caused President Holyoke inadvertently to save the Milton from the flames more than a century earlier. Another small set of books combining some of the same tools consists of two volumes containing Lord Molesworth's account of Denmark, 1738, with the 1721 edition of his translation of Franco-Gallia. These bear the same motto, the same Britannia tool as the Milton, and on the spine a still smaller Britannia, combined with the smaller cap of maintenance. Uh, this has a 3H provenance. After Hollis, it was Heber, Holford, and Hofer. The Sydney and the Milton both have the same role framing their boards. These and at least five others at Harvard sharing these tools were the work of Richard Montague, Hollis's first binder. The figure of the Britannia in all three sizes of Montague's tools is rather clumsy. The caps of maintenance with the lion may simply represent tools that happen to be in Montague's shop. There's no apparent Hollis connection. It's probably only coincidence, but a confusing one, that the family crest of the Reverend John Disney, no relation at all, who years later inherited the Hollis estate, was a, was a rather similar lion. I'm reasonably sure that Hollis wanted to represent the British lion and employed what came to hand. He may have had the Britannia tool specially cut. It would be interesting to know whether other people used them, but I've found no such example. Jonas Hanway had such a tool of his own, but it's readily distinguishable because the figure faces the other direction, among other differences. 
Hanway also used Hollis's quotation from Aikenside, O fair Britannia, hail. The Montague bindings may indeed represent a sort of trial run for Hollis. Having found that the idea of emblematic binding suited his purpose, he commissioned Giovanni Battista Cipriani to design a whole set of tools for him, most of them loosely based on Greek and Roman coins and, and metals, of which Hollis had a, uh, these are the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little out of phase here. These are Montague's tools. We'll go on to Cipriani's drawings. Most of these are loosely based on Greek and Roman coins and medals. These two cards of drawings are not dated. And I may say they're the only drawings of 18th century English binders tools that I've ever seen or heard of. <clears throat> a Montague binding on a tract volume at Harvard appears to show when Hollis turned from Richard Montague who disappears about 1759 or 60, to John Matthewman and the Cipriani tools. The latest of the three pamphlets contained in this volume is dated 1758. And that provides a terminus a quo. The binding bears the medium and small Britannia and the smaller cap of maintenance of Montague. But one Britannia on the spine is covered by a thin patch of leather that's slightly different in color right there. When you look at the book itself, you can see that the Britannia is underneath that patch. And that has on it the first version of the Cipriani Liberty Cat. Matthewman must have been involved in that small change since he controlled the Cipriani tools from the very time they were cut until 1769. A shift of symbolism is also helpful in trying to determine when Hollis left Montague for Matthewman. The Montague Britannia bears an olive branch in her right hand, and so does she in Cipriani's drawing, which I'll return. There she is, with cap of liberty on the end of a pole and an olive branch in her hand. But with the exception of the smallest of three versions in the first set of tools used by Matthewman, the tools now show her holding a trident rather than an olive branch. Surely that reflects growing British dominance of the seas in the Seven Years' War which had become virtually absolute by 1759-60. Hollis was an ardent patriot and several times commissioned medals to be cut and struck to celebrate notable victories in the war. Indeed, his work on medals, in which he engaged with Athenian Stuart and with Thomas Pingo, an engraver for the Royal Mint, may have prompted him to have the emblematic tools cut in the first place. I'll show you a couple of slides of a medal that he and Stuart designed, a silver medal designed by Hollis and Stuart, to celebrate the capture of Quebec by Wolfe, whose name you can make out vaguely on the right. Saunders was the admiral who commanded in the river in front of Quebec. And this is the other side of the medal with familiar symbolism on it. It's a millimeter scale on the right. You get a notion of the size of the thing. Finally, in Hollis's manuscript diary, which begins on April 14, 1759, there is never a mention of Montague, while Matthewman turns up regularly and frequently until June 21, 1769, when Hollis's other regular binder, John Shove, informs him that Matthewman has absconded to avoid imprisonment for debt. He never appears in the diary thereafter. 
That was also very near the end of Hollis's greatest activity in disseminating his canonical texts. Another significant change occurred at more or less the same time that Hollis turned from Montague to Matthewman as emblematic binder. This was his decision to broadcast the texts of liberty on a much wider scale, utspargam, that they may be scattered, that I may scatter them, as he, woke, as he wrote on many a title page. We find him causing Matthewman to bind 50 or 60 copies of a book in identical covers. In the case of John Wallace's Grammatica Linguae Anglicanae, 1765, at least 100 copies were uniformly bound in emblematic bindings of red morocco. This practice, its scale unsuspected by many persons, means that certain Hollis texts are relatively common in Hollis bindings. Notice with preservation in his own words. Sometimes the result is amusing. In 1842, the unwary corporation of Harvard College purchased such a volume. Blackburn's Consideration, 1768, thinking it had been stolen from the library. They were wrong. Hollis's original gift remained and remains safely on the shelf. Cipriani had met Hollis in Italy and had emigrated to England in 1755. He became a special favorite, executing most of the drawings for Hollis's Liberty Prints and then making most of the etched plates from which they were printed. You remember he did that drawing of Hollis on the pyramid. <clears throat> but where did the designs from the emblems come from? Hollis as an antiquary was particularly adept at numismatics, building up a fine cabinet of coins and a large collection of the best reference books on the subject. Many of the books he later gave to Harvard, many of these books he later gave to Harvard, where they remain in nearly pristine condition to demonstrate that neither the 18th century curriculum nor the colonists in general were really prepared to take up the study of classical coins. We can be duly grateful today for this earlier lack of demand. He had a reputation in the field that led to his becoming the principal advisor and unpaid agent for the fourth Duke of Devonshire in arranging and improving the famous ducal cabinet, which had been some generations in building up. No wonder, then, that, w that most of the tools drawn by Cipriani derive ultimately from Greek and Roman models, particularly coins and medals of the Roman Republic, modified to introduce attributes pertinent to the all-pervading theme of civil and religious freedom. The most important emblem of all was the Roman freedman's cap, or Pileus, concerning which Ridolfino Venuti, one of his Italian acquaintances, wrote this book in 1762, at Hollis's behest. This is a cop one of the several copies he gave Harvard. You'll notice that he's put three underlines under permisu because he was very indignant that any book had to have permission to be published. <clears throat> As I show you the plates from this volume, at the end of this volume, you will recognize some of the tools that you've already seen in Cipriani's drawings. This work, of course, was compiled and published well after the tools were designed and cut. Numerous earlier volumes in Hollis's collection contained cuts of the same or closely similar designs. The Pileus was probably chosen rather than the Phrygian cap that later symbolized the French Revolution because it appeared with the short sword on a coin of Marcus Brutus in the same arrangement, you see it up in the top there, as on the bust of Hollis and on the drawing of Hollis. You may remember those two 
two swords there. Hallas usually associated the sword with the right to overthrow tyrants. As a commonwealth man, he naturally included Charles I in this category. You will also recognize close cousins of other coins depicted by Venuti in Cipriani's drawings, although quite a few derive from other sources. Oh, that'll do it. Okay. I wondered what that noise was. Thought I was getting a raspberry from the back of the room. Here are the drawings with arbitrary numbers assigned to them. And I hasten to say those are on a sheet of transparent plastic on top of the drum. <laughs> two designs were drawn in two versions, a cock about to crow and one in the act of crowing, numbers three and six on there. And a harpy with Medusa's head and its talons in profile and full face, numbers five and eight. Uh, Hollis chose to have number three and number eight cut as tools, and numbers five and six were never used. Who cut the original set is not known. There's no reference to that in Hollis's manuscript diary. These tools were turned over to John Matthewman, whom Hollis may have thought a better craftsman than his other binder, John Shove. At any rate, the diary shows that Hollis employed Shove for all kinds of odd jobs in addition to binding, such as posting letters and running errands while Matthewman only occasionally helped to pack books for shipment. After Matthewman absconded in 1769, the emblematic tools were turned over to shove, and one or two were still being used on bindings for the Reverend John Disney as late as 1802. The first set consisted of 20 tools. Liberty, number four, was cut in two sizes, and Britannia, number 13 and three. In June 1764, Less than six months after the Harvard Library fire, Matthewman's London shop burnt down, destroying all the tools, along with a large number of books. No lives were lost, but all the contents of the building perished. Hollis recorded in his diary, June 6, lamented this misfortune on many accounts, but cheered Matthewman all I could. I have lost by it a large and very fine collection of books, relating chiefly to government, which were there for binding and were intended to be sent to Harvard College in New England. Besides much time and thinking, I will not be discouraged, however, but begin collecting a finer parcel for that college. And I thank God that it was not my own house that was consumed, a calamity that would have mastered my poor philosophy. He set to work at once to recall as best he could what books had been lost. And ever after that, when he got books ready to send to Harvard, he kept lists of them. He had not at that point. And within a week, he began giving want lists to dealers. The first went to Samuel Baker of York Street, Covent Garden, the progenitor of the firm now known as Sotheby's. Other lists followed shortly. On July 30, Matthewman's partner, John Bailey, called on Hollis to pay him 27 pounds insurance for the lost books and five pounds, two and six for the tools, which gives you an idea of the value of binders tools in those days. Early in November, Hollis engaged Thomas Pingo, 1692 to 1776, who was later assistant engraver at the Royal Mint, but already a fine craftsman, and his sons Lewis and John, to recut the tools after Cipriani's designs. Despite several consultations over the next 60 days, only 10 of the tools were cut promptly. 
As late as February 5, 1766, nearly two years after the fire, Hollis was still urging Pingo to complete the set. It was not until March 5th that the youngest Pingo brought the remaining seven tools, receiving two guineas for them the next day. No doubt this long delay accounts for the scarcity of occurrence of some of the tools. Although both sets of tools come from the same drawings, they can be readily identified by many differences, and if you're curious, I have a candle snuffer, but is intended for quite other purposes. Britannia somewhat resembles Pallas Athene or Minerva, but then so do the earlier versions of a symbolic Britannia. In classical representations, the cornucopia and palm branch are usually held by a tiny figure of victory standing on the outstretched right hand of Athene, signifying the peace and plenty that victory brings. The lyre, the olive branch, the trident, and the club of Hercules are all obvious symbols with classical antecedents. On medals of the Society for Promoting Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce, designed by Hollis in collaboration with Athenian Stuart, Mercury or Hermes symbolizes commerce, and probably his caduceus with the two snakes represents knowledge in support of trade. The wand of Aesculapius with one snake may represent knowledge for the general welfare of mankind, and I've never understood why the doctors use two snakes rather than one on their caduceus. Seems a little eccentric. The owls, as expected, proclaim wisdom or learning. For example, on all ten volumes of works by Sir Isaac Newton, presented by Hollis to Harvard in 1768. The design of the owls, uh, as Cipriani has drawn them, is not Greek, really, but rather derivative from the Greek coinage. Hollis provides a precise definition for the owl holding a palm branch. He owned a ring with a chalcedony stone cut with that figure, engraved with a quotation from Paradise Regained by Deeds of Peace, a motto he also frequently inscribed in the books he gave away. I have no precise source for the harpy with Medusa's head, but the theme of decapitation recalls once again the overthrow of tyrants and the execution of Charles I. I have no analog either for the insect pierced by an arrow, rarely used by Hollis. The cock is rare in Greek coinage, but seems to symbolize alertness or vigilance. Hollis made his symbols do double duty by inverting them to indicate disapproval, as in this book by a Jesuit. The title, which you can barely see, the author's name is right side up, but all the tools are inverted. Or to emphasize a point, as on this binding, which has sermons by Andrew Elliott and Jonathan Mayhew in it, one of them deploring the passage of the Stamp Act, the other one celebrating its repeal. And the motto is drawn from Sallust, Discordia Race Maximi Dilabuntur, Concordia Race Parvi Crescunt. making his feelings absolutely clear about the whole thing. Most emblematic bindings are in Morocco, and the majority of them red, but quite a few are calf, and at least one of the, with the tools inverted is perhaps scornfully bound in sheepskin. But it may have been an existing binding with a tool added because Hollis did not feel it worth rebinding. 
Others adopted for their own use some of the symbols made familiar by Hollis. I've already mentioned Jonas Hanway, but there were others as well. French revolutionary bindings sometimes bear a version of the short sword and liberty cap as on this one, which is on Edinburgh 1762 edition of Pope's Homer. Uh, executed in an for Citoyen Antoine Potier. When James Stewart brought out the first volume of his Antiquities of Athens in 1762, with aid and advice from his old friend Thomas Hollis, who had known him in Venice before he went to Athens, several copies, were six all told, I believe, were put into special bindings with an applique disc on the front cover, seemingly produced by some process resembling engraving, on which familiar emblems are to be seen. And when Count Algarotti, that ambiguous 18th century figure, published his corrected opera in eight volumes, Leghorn, 1764 to 65, the engraved frontispiece and title page of volume one borrowed numerous emblems from Hollis, with whom he corresponded. Perhaps I can get a little better focus on that. Thus far, all the bindings we have considered were, have been emblematic. But the diary shows that Hollis commissioned at least as much binding from John Shove, who did not do the emblematic bindings. It does not often specify the titles given to either binder, except for the canonical texts that went to Matthewman. But after Matthewman absconded in 1769, Hollis records that he gave a large collection of works by the Reverend Arthur Ashley Sykes, one of his dissenting heroes, to shove to bind for Harvard. These provide essential clues to differentiate the work of the two binders. All the Sykeses were bound in calf, which is not distinctive in itself, but nearly all bear a single six-petal tool gilt in the center of the front and back covers. And in each of these, a needle or awl has pierced the leather approximately in the center, presumably as a guide to the finisher, who in turn appears to have relied on his own eye and not always to have centered his tool precisely on that mark. Here is a, a blown up photograph showing where the needle went in, went in before the gilding. Taken in conjunction with the other tools and the edge rolls used on the set, and with other bindings bearing different tools but similarly pierced with the awl, it seems possible to distinguish Shove's work from Matthewman's, who seldom if ever marked centers on this or in this or any other manner. This feature also proves that Shove used the emblematic tools after Matthewman absconded, because some of them have the prick in the middle of the cover. The small tools are of common enough design for their period, but when sorted out on the basis of this idiosyncrasy, they begin to fall into two mutually exclusive groups. I've not finished this sorting, but I hope that I can one day say these are all by Shove and these are all by Matthewman. It's worth doing because both binders engaged in the same kinds of non-emblematic binding. One kind consisted of books that Hollis acquired in sound earlier or contemporary bindings and did not choose to have rebound, but he didn't like them the way they were. These he ordered to be vamped, a word that appears frequently in the diary and that we've replaced in our modern vocabulary by the unnecessary coinage revamped. If you don't believe me, look it up. <laughs> Vamping merely means that the binder reworked according to specifications an existing binding to meet Hollis's requirements, sometimes very extensively. 
Few early bindings that pass through his hands escape some degree of vamping. At the simplest, it involved inserting new marbled end papers, the standard green ribbon silk marker, a new lettering piece or label on the spine, and new headbands. Beyond that, the book might be gilded with an emblematic tool or two, or designs, fillets, or rolls of varying elaboration. It is still not clear to me whether the binder had to engage in radical surgery to perform operations, like inserting new end papers and headbands, but however it was done, it was cleverly managed. The results of vamping puzzled me greatly in the earlier stages of my study. Basic binding style seemed inexplicably out of chronology with the tooling of Matthewman and Shove. Here's a splendid late 17th century binding that has been vamped by putting the gilt owl on. But vamping, once understood and recognized, explains all. It would be interesting to know how prevalent this practice was with clients other than Hollis. I think you can also see that the gold of the owls is a slightly different color from the gold of the rest of the tooling. Sheets that were to be bound or books that were to be rebound are all of a piece and don't present such perplexities. But here again, Hollis was fond of designs recognizably his with features beyond the generalizations that I stated earlier. Some bindings are severely plain, but books of any consequence required ornamentation, and that almost invariably involved some gilt design tooled in the center of the covers. These range from a single tool, like that sun that you saw on the Sykes, to complex lace works, work lozenges built up by the repeated use of numerous small tools. Intermediate between the simple and the complex are bindings with a rosette made of four strikes of the same tool, usually floral, sometimes centered on a small star, not in that case, however. At the extreme end of the scale are a few lozenge patterns built up of 15 or more small tools with borders on the covers made sometimes with a roll and sometimes by repeated strikes of small tools. In all of these, the piercing of the leather appears to be the best means of distinguishing Shove's work, which otherwise seems more conventional than Matthewman's. Most of these non-emblematic bindings were bound up by both in polished, sprinkled, mottled, or stained calf, but a few were bound in red, blue, green, or black Morocco, despite the absence of emblematic tools and occasionally in Russia. One obvious way in which Matthewman was generally superior to Shove was in his ornamentation of the spine. With very few exceptions, Shove was typical of his period in disposing small tools in regular patterns in the compartments. Matthewman, on the other hand, could be spectacularly innovative, producing brilliant and striking spines unlike other 18th century books. In my experience, there's one. There are many that could be shown. I'll give you only two. He used dotted fillets to produce patterns of lozenges. On other books, tightly packed solid fillets run horizontally. Some have vertical tendrils of flowering vines produced by repeated strikes of a floral tool. The effect two centuries ago when they were fresh and new must have been extraordinary. Even today, after many shiftings and long exposure to less than ideal conditions, they are remarkable, and if one may say so, strikingly modern. When we place the best preserved of those books side by side, those bound by Shove as well as those by Matthewman, we can readily see that Hollis's intention to draw notice with preservation on many excellent books was brilliantly accompl accomplished by his planning and his craftsmen. 
When we add to this the fact that those books so impressed Harvard authorities that they were all kept together in one or two alcoves, there has been such an alcove or case ever since in the Harvard Library. The Hollis name on a tablet above them. We can easily imagine the strong impression they made on those who consulted the library, surrounded as they no doubt were by drab ranks of divinity calf of provincial bindings. What effect they seem to have had is a complex and important question, and you will be relieved to hear that I don't propose to go into it this evening. Thank you.